back in to talk to the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I am your instructor, David O. Gray, Master of Arts in Theology. And in this talk, I'll be highlighting section two, chapter two, called I Believe in Jesus Christ. And we begin in Nomen Apostles, Ephilio, Espiritu Sancti. This chapter contains a large block of paragraphs, starting with paragraph number 422, going all the way to paragraph 682. So the purpose of this talk is not to walk you through each of those paragraphs, over 200, but rather to supplement your reading of this section by adding some context and some color, and most importantly, connecting it to the liturgy of the church so that you might both better understand and appreciate the rich theology of the Catholic Church and what it means to be a Catholic and to believe in Jesus Christ. So what I'm going to do in this talk is to answer the questions that begin with why. And regarding several points in the Nicene Constantinople Creed concerning Jesus Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity. And honest, to be honest, you know, why really is the best question of them all, right? Why usually gets to the bottom of things. So we'll, we'll begin there. And as I pointed out in the previous talk on God the Father, this creed is, all the creeds concerning three personality, Trinity are the same um, in this section. It's the same pattern in which they, they share the revelation about three things concerning each person in the Holy Trinity. That is, each section of the creed explains first, the divine person's nature, their personhood is second, and third is their life and works or mission, I oftentimes say. Also particular to this section, we should remember that the Creed of Nicaea ended with the phrase, and in the Holy Spirit. And then at the First Council of Constantinople, they borrowed from the Creed first decided by Athanasius of Salamis in his 374 AD Ancharitis, to omit nothing from the Creed of Nicaea, but to add more to the second person of the Holy Trinity. For example, adding the phrases, according to the Holy Spirit, and is seated at the right hand of the Father, in glory, and whose kingdom will have no end. So, the first part of the Creed addresses the nature of the Father by saying, I, or we believe in God the Father Almighty. And in those three words, God, Father, and Almighty, we, it told us everything we needed to know about the nature and personhood of the first person of the Holy Trinity. And now we say we, or I believe, in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Begotten, not made, one in being that is consubstantial of one substance with the Father. Everything we need to know about Jesus is contained in this section of the Creed. Then the following stanzas, what they do is they go on to reject particular heresies that had emerged concerning how Jesus came to dwell among us and why they need to be. But for now, it is important for us to consider just this portion and succinctly, what the creed is telling us is that Jesus is everything like his father, except in personhood. That is, 
in every way that we can speak of the nature of the Father, except in origin and personhood, we can speak about the Son. I'm going to simplify without oversimplifying all this in a moment. But first, I want to spend a moment on the creed using what appears to be a redundancy in terms and exhaustive words to address Jesus' self-personhood. In particular, his uniqueness and his onlyness, saying, He is the one Lord we believe in. He is one in being with the Father. His name is Jesus. He is the anointed Messiah, the Christ, the only begotten Son of God. He is consubstantial with the Father, meaning that he is truly one in being, in essence, with his Father. He was eternally begotten, meaning that his very being of who he is is forever. That there will be never another one like him. His personhood is irreplaceable and without replacement or copy. His oneness is eternal. Although he is only and truly a distinct person, because he is eternally begotten from the eternal Father, on the level of his nature, his essence, he is everything like his Father. God from God. That is divinity from divinity. Light from light. That is, Jesus is the light of the world because his Father is the source of all light. He is true God from true God because he is not like a demigod or a son of a demigod or from a pantheon of gods or something like a god or a man-made god, but true God from true God. The effort here being made here to exhaustively explain the onlyness and uniqueness in the hypostatic nature, that is, that Jesus is both divine and human without conflict or confusion, it's how the Council of Fathers at Nicaea decided to respond to the challenges of Neoplatonism at the time and the heresy of Arianism. Out of Neoplatonism, out of that construct, the Arians were positing that Jesus was more than a mere man, but less than a god. That Jesus was, was really closer to what the Roman Neoplatonists would have thought to be a demigod, like a a Hercules, the son of Jupiter. So what appears to be a redundancy in the creed where we first say God from God and then true God from true God is not a redundancy at all, but rather a method to exhaustively explain and proclaim that Jesus is truly and fully divine without contradiction or pollution. Outside of this piece of revelation about the nature of Jesus Christ, Christianity is no more meaningful than the first inning of a baseball game. Outside of this piece of revelation that Jesus is true God from true God, Christianity would not be a consequential religion if God did not truly come to dwell among us as one of us. Nor would it be a religion worthy of our sense of faith because we already believed in the idea of the demigod. So the creed here is saying that Jesus is something completely new that's never been before. Here's something that many people do not consider when confessing a creed at Mass. 
Harken back to the second lecture in this series that was called God Comes to Meet Man. And the point I made about true relationship begins when we know the name of a person. Remember the contrast that made between Moses and the God who told Moses his backstory saying, I am who I am. Versus Mary Cinco said whose relationship began when they told each other their names. Now think of this stanza of the creed being like a love letter written by us. It begins very relational in that way. It also begins by, because it begins with a personal name. It says that we have the power, we have been given the power through revelation to call on God by name. I believe in one Lord Jesus. In confessing his name, we confess that we are in relationship with him. That we have a name to call on God. Because his name, Yeshua, Jesus, however you call on him, means God saves. And everything about his mission that we confess thereafter in the creed is a consequence of who he is, his nature, from which his name is birth. God is love, according to 1 John 4, 8. And God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, according to John 3, 16. If God is love, and he loved the world so much that he sent his son, who is also love, in sending his son, he sent himself to us. But not only that, in sharing the Holy Spirit with us, who is also love, he shared with us his name, which is divine love, so that we might truly become like the one who he sent to us. Not only that, but when the Son tells us to ask my Father for anything in my name, he will grant it to you. We understood that through love, the Father is reconciling the world to himself in the name of divine love, the Anointed One, Christ Jesus. We will be saved for God saves. That's his name. The redundancies are amazingly beautiful here. There will be no other name through which men will be able to be saved because there is no other divine love other than the one we were called into. We have no other name that is evidence that we have relationship with God than the one we were given, the one that was revealed to us. Christ Jesus is truly one in every way. For this reason, paragraph 435 of the Catechism says, The name of Jesus is at the hearts of Christian prayer. All liturgical prayers conclude with the words, Through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Hail Mary reaches its high point in the words, Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. The Eastern Prayer of the Heart, the Jesus Prayer, says, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Many Christians, such as St. Joan of Arc, have died with the one word, Jesus, on their lips. Everything else that's been revealed to us about Jesus and everything else we confess about him in a creed is a consequence of his nature and the first fruits of his nature 
that we confess is his name. God is love. And because God loves us, he saved us. Even his titles are consequence of his nature and his name. And he has the title Christ anointed. Because only the anointed one by God has the authority and power to save us. He has the title the only begotten son of God. Because who else can save us? Certainly not ourselves. Who can sacrifice himself for us? Certainly not a person with only the same nature or an identical nature as us. Because he is the only one who can save us. He has a title Lord and is due all reverence from us. Outside of our Lord's name and titles, there has been little revelation about his divine personhood and mission. Even from the Gospels, it is difficult to develop a deep Christology because he speaks more about us and about his eternal father than he speaks about himself. The closest things we have been given that has really given us some insight into his personhood, his divine nature and mission are the 12 unique I am statements, um, his personal self-disclosures from the Gospel of John. Those 12 things were where he says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am with the father who sent me. I am from above. I am the son of man. I am before Abraham. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the life, and the truth. And I am the one who bears witness of myself. Yet, even these 12 I am statements in which Jesus discloses some insights into his divine personhood and mission in nature, he is still pointing us to his eternal father. The letter to the church at Colossae in chapter 1 verses 15 through 20 goes somewhat further than the prologue in John to reveal to us the life of Christ before he became man, saying, He is the invisible image of God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him were created all things in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in all things he himself might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness was pleased to dwell. So the Holy Spirit, who inspired the authors of the sacred text, did not think that it was substantially important to reveal to us the details about the life of Christ outside of his birth narrative, his temple, his visit to the temple as a young boy, and the and the years preceding his crucifixion, the years of his ministry that preceded the crucifixion. The sacred scriptures are only concerned about how God would love to commune with us and how we might more closely commune with God. Here, the Nicene Constantinople Creed agrees. Following the stanza, through him all things are made, which again points to the letter to the Colossians, 
The creed has much more to say about the personhood and mission of Christ in the flesh. His birth, passion, ascension, and his final judgments. Most importantly, the creed needs to affirm that Jesus is truly human and truly divine, but divine that becomes human rather than a human that becomes divine. The order matters here. That from the moment of conception, he was fully God and fully human, and that from the moment of conception, the Holy Spirit's mission was uniquely married to the mission of Christ Jesus. Just as the creed affirms earlier that Jesus was begotten, not made, true God from true God, the virgin birth affirms that he was truly born, not merely placed among us, but true human from true human and true God from true God, both eternally begotten and humanly born, meaning that Jesus Christ functioned fully as both God and man. That is, he had a fully functioning and fully rational human soul with true human knowledge, two wills, two natures, divine and human, in harmonious operation to effect the admirable change. That is, the beautiful mystery of the incarnation of the divine nature taking on human nature, of God becoming man so that man might become like God, the admirable exchange. This, this mystery of the admirable exchange is the whole object of the liturgy of the Catholic Mass. That is, to divinize us, to make us truly one with God, to lift up our whole being as we sing in a sorsum coda, we lift up our hearts. We do lift them up. We do offer up our entire being to him who can finish the work he began in us. He whom the sacraments of the church prepares us to worthily receive is doing the work of grace in us to make us worthy to stand in the presence of his Father. In this way, we rightly proclaim that the liturgy is all about the love of the Holy Trinity has for us. And what is shame on those who would try to make the liturgy all about themselves or about the mere human experience? Beginning with paragraph 512 and all the way through paragraph 682, the Catechism of the Catholic Church does a marvelous job unpacking the meaning and mystery behind the particular events of Jesus' mission on earth. Beginning with the infancy narratives, his in his hidden life, to the baptism of Jesus, his temptation in the desert, the proclamation of the kingdom of God, um, being at hand, the giving Simon Peter the keys to the kingdom, his transfiguration, his his journey to Jerusalem, his, the preceding um, the events preceding the passion. And the Catechism then really unpacks, I think really beautifully, the whole passion of Christ and then his descent into hell, the resurrection, the ascension into heaven, where he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from which he will come to judge the living and the dead. So there is a great deal in these paragraphs that demand our study, our comprehension, 
And most especially our faith and meditation. We should think about these things, such as the Blessed Mother Mary did. As a supplement for your reading here, the best that I can do is really draw back on our previous work in realizing that the best way to digest the nature, personhood, life, work, mission of Jesus Christ is to be understood through his name. Everything about our God is a consequence of who he is, his nature. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is the God who is with us. He is Jesus. He is the God who saves. And he saves because his nature is divine love. And the first principle of love is that love shares itself without restriction or limitation. The gift of divine love is not hindered or bothered by its object's ability or interest in receiving that gift. Rather, divine love just is. It is always a yes, regardless of our propensity to say no. Divine love is such that we cannot even run from it if we tried. Because there is no place where love is not, for God is love, and God is omnipresent. Therefore, even if we were to run, where would we hide? Where would we run to from love? Where could we hide from love? Where could we escape from love? Where could we not run into love, even if we were to run? This is the nature, personhood, and life of God among us. Divine love could not fail into temptation and it could not be killed through the death penalty because love can neither, divine love can neither fail nor die. Even divine love has to judge the living and the dead because the final judgment is the great and final revelation of God's love, of how much God had desired communion with us and how much we rejected that communion with him. That's the final judgment. The nature, personhood, and life and works of Christ Jesus is all explained again in his name. There is one particular stanza in the creed that the Catechism of the Catholic Church did not spend time on that is helpful, I think, here to wrap up our discussion on Jesus being true God and true man. That is that Jesus suffered. It is a dogma in the Catholic Church that God does not suffer or have any emotions or mood swings or material changes in any temporal way. Therefore, Christ Jesus being fully God and fully human, hypostatically, that is, though both having both a divine nature and a human nature, but both natures being one, incomplete, and immutable, unchangeable, an immutable existence at the moment of conception. Jesus, who is God and God being unchanging, he is the same God yesterday, today, and forever, never experiencing joy, pain, delight, or suffering as a result of some change in brain chemicals that causes mere humans to experience um, changes in feelings. God doesn't experience life that way. He doesn't, his nature didn't experience life on earth that way, Jesus of Nazareth. For example, in an instant case, if we were to ask Jesus during the passion, during the purging on the pillar or at the cross, hey, Jesus, how do you feel? He would not have informed us of any change in how he emotionally 
doubts because God does not have changes in his emotions. He's immutable. He's unchangeable. He's God. He's impassable. So how do we understand this part of the creed or even scripture altogether that speaks of a God who is angry, who is jealous, who wept, groaned, grieved, whose heart recoils, and who suffered, as the creed says? Here, the onus is on us. It is not the impossible God who relates to us through a catalog of changing emotions. Rather, it is us who relate to God through our catalog of changing emotions. In other words, if we ever sense that God is angry or is suffering or is joyful or whose heart recoils, it is just us responding to our perception of God's love. That is, if God is love, and all that he can do is love. What does it mean that if we perceive that God loving us is him being angry with us or him suffering the consequence of our choices? It simply means that we are experiencing emotions surrounding either being consoled or being convicted by the Holy Spirit. Consider the contrast of Jesus in the Gospels, who is clearly impassable. Right? He doesn't experience emotions. He doesn't show any mood swings in the Gospels. He doesn't show any emotions. But consider that versus Simon Peter, whose emotions were everywhere. Angry, sad, disappointed, excited. And each of these emotions he experienced were just a result of God's love for him. And each time he could have thought that, man, Jesus is angry with me. Such as when Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. Certainly, if God had said that to me, I would have thought or told someone or wrote it down in the journal. Man, God is angry with me for what I said. But that would not have been true because God is impossible. He doesn't have mood swings. That was just me responding to God with my emotions. Me doing theology. Me understanding God emotionally. Again. The emotions that we attribute to God, <laughs> that, that God is weeping, God is angry, God is suffering. That's just how we are relating to God through our emotions, not how God is relating to us through his emotions, because he doesn't experience emotions. God is love and love is not an emotion. Love is a divine nature. In our next encounter, I look forward to sharing with you the third and final section of Nicene Constantinople Creed, beginning with, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Amen.